I would like to talk about joy. What is joy and what are the means we have to cultivate joy? First, let's see what that could be. Joy as a state of mind that's ethically wholesome and helpful in terms of practice. At first sight, it doesn't seem so easy to discern and tell apart the different feelings and mind states, such as pleasure, delight, bliss, rapture, and happiness, and joy. So I look up Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipi Wikipedia says, That's sometimes really helpful. <laughs> Joy is a spontaneous emotional reaction to a situation, a person, or a memory. It can take on different forms and intensities of pleasant feelings. It can manifest on a scale ranging from a smile to a cry of joy. These emotions are in themselves neither good nor bad. But in fact, this is not Wikipedia, but in fact, um, joy can have different qualities and can be motivated by different mind states. Eric Fromm, for, for example, distinguishes between pleasure as a short time high and joy as a feeling one experiences on the path to human self-realization. For from joy as a life principle stands in contrast to pleasure as a life principle, the latter being the hallmark of consumer society. Another distinction arises independence of the accompanying mental factors. They can be morally wholesome or unwholesome or neutral and the joy will be accordingly. First, I'd like to pursue Fromm's point. Pleasant experience, pleasure or lust can go along with joy, but they're different qualities, different from joy itself. For example, we sit in a pleasantly warm bathtub with nice foam and fragrant smells, but worry about their business situation. So we have pleasant experience, yet no joy. Or we sit together for dinner with a friend or with our partner. The meal is delicious. The ambiance is good, except we have an argument and are upset. So in spite of very pleasant tastes and atmosphere, no place for joy. So pleasant experience does not necessarily create joy. And Robert Stoltz confirmed, those who are annoyed for one minute should consider that they're losing 60 seconds of joy. These examples confirm what is described in the Buddhist psychology in the Abhidhamma. Joy, and that's piti for the specialists, Joy on one hand is a 
mental factor, pleasantness, happiness as an experience, sukha. On the other hand, is a feeling tone, is a vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, remember. And here's what this means. It means joy can be cultivated. Pleasant experience comes and goes simply independence of causes and circumstances. We can acquire a pleasant object, a pleasant experience, if we're lucky, but we cannot cultivate pleasant or pleasantness. We would have done it long ago. It doesn't work, yet we're still trying. I think it's really interesting. Again, joy can be developed, cultivated, not so with pleasantness. Within different joys, we have those ethic ethically or karmically wholesome, those unwholesome, and those neutral. Rejoicing in someone's happiness or goodness, that is, sympathetic joy, or joy arising through metta, would be an ethically wholesome joy. Rejoicing in the bad fortune of someone, one can do that, something like a malicious glee, would be an unwholesome joy. I think being happy about today's nice weather is probably an ethically neutral joy. When we talk about the cultivation of joy here, in, in the sense of dharma practice, we mean, of course, karmically or ethically positive or wholesome joy. In its positive, wholesome aspect, joy is an important and powerful quality on the path to the end of suffering, on the path to happiness and liberation. For one, joy is a factor of absorption, so-called jhana factor. It means joy is a substantial aspect of a collected, calm, and wakeful mind, along with what is called applied attention, sustained attention, happiness, and one-pointedness. Joy is also a factor of awakening, or a factor of enlightenment which means it has to be present in heart and mind for deep liberating insight to arise. And it has to be accompanied in a balanced way by mindfulness, investigation, right effort or energy, calm, collectedness, and equanimity. Supposedly there is a statement by the Buddha saying, and I haven't yet found the source, so supposedly, that says joy is the gateway to Nibbana in as far as it is one of the factors of awakening of, or of enlightenment. It definitely is part of the gateway to Nibbana. In his book, The Art of Happiness, the Dalai Lama writes, the purpose of life is to be happy. I think it all points to the importance of joy, of wholesome joy, as part of the path. 
Before we look at my own list, I'll share some points out of James Barras's program, Awakening Joy. James is a colleague and friend who lives and teaches in Berkeley, California, and at Spirit Rock. He has been teaching this program both live and over the internet so that thousands of people have been able to participate. Here are some points he recommends in order to create and to strengthen joy in one's heart. The first one he mentions is to incline one's heart towards joy. So it's a practice, unlike the search for or the running after pleasure. The Buddha said, as we have heard before, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon will be the inclination of their mind, their heart. In other words, if we often busy ourselves with angry and aversive thoughts and speech, with criticism and fault-finding, then our hearts and minds will develop more and more aversive tendencies, which means less and less joy and happiness. If we occupy ourselves with thoughts of wanting and desire, desire for more or better or newer or more pleasant or whatever, then our hearts and minds will get lost in tendencies of greed and attachment more and more, which again means less joy and happiness. And Christina explained last night how this works. Remember the different papanchas. I think this following statement of the Buddha is very important. This joy, this gladness, in connection with the wholesome, this I call a means for the mind to overcome anger and enmity. We have to incline our hearts consistently again and again towards the wholesome if we want to strengthen a tendency towards joy. And James's second point, I think this is why it's recommended to consciously strengthen the intention to awaken, to cultivate joy within. It's not much different, this point. And of course, at the same time, reduce suffering. There's a Tibetan statement of wisdom, quite famous. It says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything rests on the tip of intention. It's not so much what we do, then the intention or the motivation behind it, which, decide, which decides what effect it will have on us. What we do is one thing, but where we come from in doing that, that is what is going to have an influence on ourselves. So it's not enough to wish for joy or to develop a longing for it, Rather, we need to decide for it. So inclining our hearts to joy, strengthen the intention to awaken joy. And quite practically in this context here, <coughs> what can support us too is 
to consciously notice these wholesome states of joy or you know maybe just true interest fascination here in one's meditation when these states of mind are present look is it when I'm trying to get more out of a situation is it when I'm trying to get more out of an experience or is it when I'm open welcoming generous willing to be with what is is it when I'm sort of criticizing nagging inside or is it when we're supportive with what's going on to see that to notice which mind state arises in what connection and how how it is also how it feels how does it feel when there are wholesome states when there are joyful states how does it feel in the body what's the feeling like is it warm melting exciting inspired is it energetic radiance is it a calm feeling of connectedness to get to know right to get familiar with Maybe similar to the metta meditation, we say the phrases, we practice it, and somehow, every so often, maybe more and more often, we start to get a sense of what metta really is, how it feels, and that sort of makes it more accessible. We start to know that state of mind, and as we know it, it's easier to remember it or call it up or connect back with it. So same thing here. What is this joy of the wholesome? And what's the difference to pleasantness? We need to learn to be with joy. And in this respect, I think it's good to know that it is already in us. So we can reconnect with it. It's not that we have to invent it. It's not part of us and we sort of make it up and then develop it babies already have it they show joy spontaneously that's perhaps what Angelius Silesius refers to in his famous poem he wrote the poem in German and it's in rhymes and I put it in English doesn't sound quite the same but Here's the translation. I come, I don't know from where. I am, I don't know who. I die, I don't know when. I go, I don't know where to. I wonder why I'm so joyful. <laughs> the fourth point. Um, for all this to become possible, we need, surprise, surprise, right mindfulness, wise awareness and presence. The tools necessary for the awakening of joy. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness, the Buddha states that this right or wise mindfulness is the means for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation of suffering and discontent and for the realization of Nibbana, the highest happiness. 
Minky Rinpoche has worked with neuroscientists getting his brain checked out through EEGs and MRIs while meditating. And they found that he's a very special meditator, I think. <laughs> they found that during meditation, the areas of happiness in his brain were 700 times more active than what they are in normal people. So mindfulness, awareness, meditation seems to help. <laughs> Last point here. There are also quite a few things one can do outwardly. And I guess this relates more to daily life than to a retreat situation. Moving one's, partly we do that here too. Moving one's body, stretching, <coughs> dancing. Don't do so much dancing and singing running, hiking, walking, brings aliveness, gets the energies moving. This might actually be ethically neutral joy only, but I think it's still worthwhile. To move in nature connects us with life, which we are, which we always have been. These are the points I took from James Barraza's Awakening Joy program. Before I go on, I'd like to read a few verses connected to nature written by the Venerable Mahakasapa, one of the main, very important disciples of the Buddha. In the Zen tradition, he's said to be the next in line after the Buddha. Now, Kasapa was known as a very strict and a very austere ascetic. And it comes as quite a surprise to hear his verses expressing love and enthusiasm for nature. Where some are exhausted climbing the rocks, there Kasapa, the awakened one's ear, climbs mindful, alert, and strengthened by his mental powers returning from his arms rounds, climbing the peak, Kasapa absorbed in meditation, free from clinging, his work done, unbound. And he goes on, strung with garlands of kareri flowers, this patch of earth delights the mind. The lovely calls of elephants sound, these rocky crags refresh me so. The shimmering hue of darkening clouds, cool waters and pure streams flowing, covered by Indra's ladybugs, these rocky cracks refresh me so. Uncrowded by the village folk, but visited by herds of deer, covered with moist carpets of moss, these rocky cracks refresh me so. There's not so much joy for me in the music of a five-piece band, as there is when my mind is at one, seeing the Dhamma aright. So next I would like to list a number of practice aspects through which joy can be encouraged and supported. 
business aspects or areas are ethical conduct, generosity, gratefulness, forgiveness, playfulness and humor, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, and the Bodhisattva's attitude. And I'm sure there are many more, but these are plenty for now. <laughs> Maybe even too many. So the first quality is ethical conduct. Just as a tree has to have roots to be able to grow, to blossom, and to produce fruit, even so do we need ethical conduct to be able to realize happiness and liberation, the fruit of practice. We practice nonviolence and peacefulness. We respect the property of others. We care for clarity and sensibility in our relationships and our partnerships. And uphold the principles of honest, nonviolent, helpful speech as much as we can. And it's precisely through this kind of ethical conduct that much joy can arise. It's the joy of blamelessness in thought and speech, in action. I think general ethical conduct does not come about through rules and regulations, even though rules can be very helpful. Does not arise because we think we should act a certain way, and even less on the basis of a bad conscience or feeling of guilt. If ethical conduct does come about in one of these ways, I don't think there will be so much joy coming from it. Rather genuine ethical conduct springs from wisdom and connectedness. And I think that brings a lot of joy. We protect, on one hand, we protect ourselves from the karmic repercussions of our unwholesome actions. We know that by acting in wholesome ways, we spare ourselves from suffering and we create inner well-being. And this makes us happy. And on the other hand, we protect others from our own un unwholesome activities out of our feelings of connectedness and compassion. And this makes us joyful too. So ethical conduct, then generosity. From generosity, joy arises. When we give, when we're generous, we feel connected with those we give to whether it's material things or supportive and helpful words, whether it's money or it's time or it's attention. When we give, when we're in this mode of generosity, we feel rich. We feel there's an inner abundance, independently of how much we have. And that makes us feel joyful. Generosity is not simply a human virtue, but it is a so-called paramita, one of the perfections bodhisattvas cultivate and Buddhas have realized 
have completed. Generosity weakens and overcomes desire, attachment, grasping, and stinginess, and therefore is a very liberating and unburdening quality of the heart. We're more at ease and more joyful in a state of generosity. And our life becomes more meaningful and rich. Lao Tzu said, the wise don't accumulate things, but the more they do for others, the more meaningful their life becomes. And the more, and the more they give to others, the greater is their abundance. So ethical conduct, generosity, and gratitude. Gratefulness is another source of joy. Celia Thaxter wrote, there shall be eternal summer in the grateful heart. Sounds good, but it's not the heat wave. <laughs> we can be grateful for and rejoice in all the good things which happen to us in life. This is by David Steindl-Rust, Austrian-American monk, poet, and activist, on joy and gratefulness. He says, ordinary happiness depends on circumstances. Joy is that extraordinary happiness that is independent of what happens to us. Good luck can make us happy, but it cannot give us lasting joy. The root of joy is gratefulness. We tend to misunderstand the link between joy and gratefulness. We notice that joyful people are grateful and suppose that they're grateful for their joy. But the reverse is true. Their joy springs from their gratefulness. If one has all the good luck in the world but takes it for granted, it will not give one joy. Yet even bad luck gives will give joy to those who manage to be grateful for it. We hold the key to lasting happiness in our own hands. For it is not joy that makes us grateful, it is gratitude that makes us joyful. And the following shows that we could even be grateful for misfortune and difficulties if we train ourselves in this way. We can be grateful for not knowing everything because it gives us the opportunity to learn. We can be grateful for difficult times. In these times, we can grow inwardly. That one is good to remember on a retreat. <laughs> we can be grateful for our limitations since they give us a chance to make progress. We can be grateful for each new challenge because they strengthen our character. We can be grateful for our mistakes since they provide us with valuable lessons. Though it's easier to be grateful for the pleasant and good things, it's those who are also grateful for setbacks and mistakes who have a rich and fulfilled life. 
Gratefulness can transform what is negative into what is positive. If we find a way to be grateful for our problems, they become blessings. And if we can be grateful for these blessings, this causes great joy to arise in us. So ethical conduct, generosity, gratefulness. Forgiveness, next one. To be able to forgive is joyful. It's a kind of gift. Whatever grudge we hold against someone burdens our shoulders and weighs on our heart. There's a story by Derek Lynn. It's called The Tao of Forgiveness. One day, the sage asked the disciple to think of all the people who she was holding a grudge against, especially those she could not forgive. She had to inscribe the name of each of them on a potato and put it in a sack and carry it around for a week. Carrying the sack was not particularly difficult, but after a while it became more and more of a burden. It began to get in the way and it seemed to require more effort to carry. After a few days, the potatoes began to rot. So in addition to the weight, there was a disgusting smell. Once the week was over, the sage inquired how things had been. The disciples said, when we're unable to forgive others, we carry negative feelings with, with us, much like these potatoes. They become a burden to us and after a while begin, begin to fester and stifle our well-being. We can only lighten the burden by forgiving. I've decided to forgive all my transgressors, even though it requires much effort, and I have to be willing to let go again and again. The master smiled and then she said, very well then, you can remove all the potatoes now. Or were there any people who transgressed against you recently or today? The disciple felt panic when she realized her empty sack was about to get filled up again. <laughs> then she asked the master, but master, if the potatoes are negative feelings, what then is the sack? The sack is that which allows to hold on to the negativity. It is something within us that makes us dwell on feeling offended. It is our inflated sense of self-importance and our identification with and our grasping of it. When we let go of the sack, then things that people do or say against us no longer seem to be much of a problem. In that case, we won't have any names to inscribe on potatoes, no more weight to carry around, and no more bad smells that can stifle our joy. The Tao of forgiveness is the conscious decision to not just remove a few potatoes, but to relinquish the entire sack. And again, in this way, the innate qualities of the heart will shine unhindered, kindness, generosity, and joy. So ethics, giving, gratefulness, forgiving. An inexhaustible source of cheerfulness and joy is humor. 
not so much humor at the expense of others, but the laughing or, or at least the smiling about ourselves, about our own importance, our personal difficulties, our dramas. When we are ready and willing to not take ourselves too serious, to smile about our faith, cheerfulness and joy appear, where otherwise resentment or worry might be present. So humor is really enjoyable. Equally enjoyable is a playful approach to oneself and to life, quite obviously. Some people do great approaching practice in a grim and dogged way, believing this to be virtuous. Sometimes, strangely enough, you know, we even prefer worry and concern over being happy. Here's an illustration of this. And in Europe, this is funny, and I don't know how this works in America. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't work the same. A man said to his colleague, I'm worried that my wife might be unfaithful. The colleague inquires, are there any indications for this? The man replace, replies, no, no, not really. It's this uncertainty that drives me insane. So it's almost like, see, it doesn't work. <laughs> so it's almost like, why be cheerful and happy when we can be miserable? And I think at times we may even believe that playful and light equals a lack of discipline and earnestness. While in fact the ideal combination of right effort is cheerful and earnest, at ease and disciplined. That's what allows for clarity, depth and again joy. Tsongsa Kensi Rinpoche, who has spent a lot of his time in the West and seems to know us quite well, seems to have recognized the problem we sometimes have with grimness instead of joyful effort. He says, we do need diligence. It's very important. Many think that to be diligent means to work hard, to do as many mantras as a Tibetan or prostrations as you can, as quickly as possible, to practice as much as you can. And true, that's a kind of diligence, but not exactly the pure one. He says, pure diligence is joy. What we need is joy to practice. The practice that we do, how many of us do it out of joy? How many of us do it because our gurus or our teachers have told us to do it? or because we feel guilty and then do it, or because we feel committed to it. But really, there we don't really have any joy. And then he says, I don't even call this Dharma practice. I call it mental torture. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So the way or, or the quality of our effort plays an essential role in generating joy. 
So to really over and over look at the attitude in which we're present and the way, the quality in which we make effort to be present. Ethics, giving, gratefulness, forgiveness, playfulness. Metta, loving kindness, is an ideal breeding ground for joy. When we manage to put the far enemies you know, of metta, annoyance and hatred, out of action, and manage not to get caught in its so-called near enemies, which is desire and attachment, then our minds will abide more frequently in connectedness and joy. To train our mind in a way that lets benevolence, goodwill and kindness become more and more second nature also means the usual thoughts of comparing, of judging and condemning give slowly way to an inner atmosphere of more openness and of more joy. Same is true for sympathetic joy, mudita, appreciative joy, in a way close to gratefulness. And I'd like to quote a few verses by Shantideva, the 8th century Indian poet, poet and bodhisattva. Verses which convey this inner mood of sympathetic or, or appreciative joy. Gladly do I rejoice in the virtue that relieves the misery of all those in unfortunate states and that places those with suffering in happiness. I rejoice in that gathering of virtue that is the cause for awakening. I rejoice in the final freedom of beings, freedom from the cycle of suffering. I rejoice in the awakening of the Buddhas and in the stages of realization of the Bodhisattvas. And with gladness I rejoice in the wholesome wish of bodhicitta, of great compassion, as deep and as wide as the ocean, wishing for all beings to be happy and rejoicing in their beneficial deeds. And also what we do in the evening, you know, to remember our practice, to remember the practice of others here and elsewhere, and to really rejoice in it, to appreciate it, to acknowledge it. Very important. And I don't know what happens when you do that or when you know, one of us says do that. You think, oh right, I'm sure there was some kind of good quality, hopefully. Or can you actually appreciate, oh wow, I really tried to be mindful today. I really made effort. I was really so interested. Not all the time, of course, <laughs> but often. And, you know, I was really patient. And patience is when we're impatient. So it doesn't really feel patient. It feels impatient. And yet we keep on sitting. We don't run out and walk away. We keep on walking. To appreciate that. To appreciate the effort, the continuity, whatever effort there is and continuity there is. The fact that we do try to generate metta. Not to say, oh, it didn't work so well today. To really appreciate all that. Appreciative joy, 
sympathetic joy for our own and others. Good qualities, practice, virtue, happiness. Very wonderful. The countless opportunities, actually, to rejoice in all that, the success, the well-being of others, of ourselves. Instead of getting drawn into envy and jealousy, Ethics, generosity, gratefulness, forgiveness, playfulness, kindness, and appreciation. As a last short point, I'd like to mention bodhicitta, the altruistic motivation and practice of the bodhisattvas. It's the determination to give up self-centeredness or to practice giving up self-centeredness and to aspire to the highest realization for the welfare of all of life. When we care for the welfare of others, out of genuine connectedness, out of compassion, or whenever we are in that mode, then our own problems, our own sufferings become less important. Like it looks like that's just one problem, and there are, what is it, six billion others? So it's not, it's incredible, this one problem. The shift in perspective. We stop getting in our way so much, and through that life gets simpler, lighter, happier within. Mark Twain saw this when he wrote, the best way to make oneself happy is to try to make others happy. It works. To me, a beautiful example of this is the Dalai Lama. In spite of the extremely difficult predicament he and his people are in, he's someone with a very tangible, quite contagious sense of joy. And his joy comes from his compassionate aspirations. He says that's where it comes from, and you can tell. And they're expressed in the following verse, which he, which the, it's a verse by Shantideva, which he, the Dalai Lama, declared to be one of his most important ones. He often says that. And I would like to close with this verse. It's for as long as space lasts, and for as long as living beings remain, until then, may I too abide, devoted to dispelling the suffering of the world. Can you just sit quietly for a moment? For as long as space lasts, and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide, devoted to dispelling the suffering of the world. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.